Hello and welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with Marianne Clements, which is being hosted by the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersections between mental health, people management, and organizational culture, using the lens of care and compassion. Today, you'll hear me talk with Mele Prera, Human Resource Director at the Jesuit Refugee Service. I wanted to talk with her because she found a way four years ago to introduce major changes to how her humanitarian organization supports its staff. So when COVID hit, she didn't need to reinvent the wheel, but adapt it. In this conversation, we touch on motivation, why care about staff care, process, how to change an organization's approach, hint, data and partnerships are key. The shifting role of HR from a focus on policies and recruitment to building a spirit of care. Cost, is it really expensive to do right by staff? Convincing decision makers to invest in staff care and the important issue of diversity. One thing that she said that really stuck with me was that it is much easier to take decisions when people are at the center of any type of decision. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here we go. So I'd like to welcome Meli Prera to the podcast yes. today. Meli, you are the Human Resources Director at the Jesuit Refugee Service. Your HR department supports 56 countries in 10 regions. Right. And it implements HR management practices tailored to both the field and headquarters realities, which is very important. In your capacity, you are guiding senior management on the development and promotion of strategic policies and projects to support the well-being and the performance of the GRS employees. So it's very good to know that you are looking at well-being as we are. Um, your focus is on organizational well-being, consisting of organizational policies, specific self-care practices, and tailored health and psychosocial support services in response to a balanced equation between employee well-being, duty of care, very important, and organizational performance. And before you were at JRS, you were working for international development organizations like FAO and IDLO. And you hold a BA in human resource management with a focus on social relations from, uh, do you say CNAM? NAM. NAM in France and an MSc in international human resource management and development from the University of Manchester in the UK. Welcome, Melly. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, I've given your official bio, but maybe you want to give us an unofficial introduction <laughs> to yourself, a share a little bit about yourself, what makes you passionate about well-being? Sure, definitely. So just to add to the picture you just uh, you know, made of me, your introduction to me, I would like to say that I'm also a French national with origins from uh, Guinea-Bissau and Senegal. I'm also a mother of two teenage boys, 17 and 14, and my 17 years old is now studying in Paris. This is uh, about me, you know, right now. Why did I really focus my career into employee well-being, organizational performance? I think it's uh, related to what I experienced during my professional life. I was, let's say, um, kind of a, a victim of, you know, poor uh, staff care in an organization. 
And this is really what brought me to say, we don't have to suffer to do the work that we love, okay? It's true that work is a huge part of uh, our life, but we have to find a way, you know, as an individual, but also from an organization uh, standpoint to find a balance into um, how individual can really uh, find their space and also flourish, you know, uh, in the organization. So I working at GRS was really a uh, an opportunity for me to focus on employee well-being and also uh, provide the organization with this type of balance, being a performant organization while caring for the people who are serving in this organization. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I think I also came to this from the, having my own personal experience. Uh, can you say a little bit about what you're doing now in your current role at JRS? Sure. Um, so my focus really is uh, employee uh, well-being. So back in 2016, when I joined GRS, um, I kind of did a, an audit of the organization, looking really at the health of the organization in terms of you know, HR policies, uh, in terms of uh, specific uh, trends, and also um, challenges that HR around the globe, because we have different HR uh, professionals working also with me to understand what was their main challenges in, um, in their work. And um, I had to partner with a lot of people and also a lot of organizations to help me do this. And we have uh, done a big analysis of uh, several countries in Africa, Asia, Middle East, just to, to have, you know, um, to have the opportunity to build a strong program based on relevant data. So we have been uh, interviewing, we have been doing some focus group in these various countries and came up with a, um, a lot of data which really informed us on the global employee well-being program that we have now in the organization. So basically what emerged from this work was um, issues that the organization had in terms of security and safety, in terms of organizational policies, in terms of uh, psychosocial support, and also working conditions and environment. So uh, when I said, obviously, we, we did a big work, I partnered with organizations, you know, uh, that um, GRS is, um, let's say, is working with, such as Boston College, Fordham, Georgetown, uh, to really help me and my department to analyze and also build a strong uh, response to the needs that came out from the ground. So we had a report, a 60, nearly 70 page report on why uh, it was important to have an employee well-being program into our organization. So based on that, we have developed pilot projects, pilot projects to respond to some of our uh, emerging needs. Uh, for example, we uh, partnered with Conterra to respond to the psychosocial needs that were arising from the ground. Uh, we have also partnered with another NGO called Safe Call, which is more about um, how to speak up, how to put forward claims or even 
um, speak up about wrongdoings in the organization in a very safe, safe mode. So we have been able to uh, collaborate with different organizations to help us really, let's say, implement this employee well-being program. In addition to this, we have uh, also looked into issues related to organizational policies. So security and safety was also a big issue in terms of not having appropriate uh, or not respecting appropriate standard in terms of security, in terms of um, standard operating procedures, you know, if you are in a critical um, event, how do you respond to that, you know, and the duty of care of an organization in relation to uh, occupational safety. So I have hired um, a chief security advisor who is working full time with me um, on helping our offices to have to meet the minimum standard in terms of security and safety. So we've got specific trainings, which are the UN trainings for our employees, for example. We have also uh, partnered with, an, with a university, Georgetown University, in terms of uh, policies. One of the other aspects that came up also very strongly in our report was um, the issues related to gender. So we had to really study that and understand you know, where this was coming from. Obviously, working for a faith-based organization run by a male order could, uh, let's say, was difficult to introduce, let's say, the subject of gender. But I'm happily, uh, I'm happily uh, reporting that we have a gender policy and we are in the implementation phase of it. So what I would say in terms of, you know, building an employee well-being program or even a a staff care culture in an organization like, like GRS or in any other organization, it's really important to analyze um, the people who are working there, understand the needs of the people, but also understand the organizational culture and how far you can go in implementing this type of uh, services to staff. So I always you know, advocated for change. And uh, the way I did it is really by understanding um, the uh, the mentality of the Jesuits, okay, mm -hmm. and also understand how I can really speak about employee well-being within a faith-based organization, mm -hmm. okay. And I have to say that the the way the Jesuits are thinking is also very much in line with I don't know if you're uh, um, familiar with this term, cura personalis which is a really a terminology that um, is defined to care about your, about your whole person, not only uh, physically, but also mentally, spiritually, and so on. And I use those, um, let's say, descriptions to build up you know, on my uh, employee well-being program, because we have also religious working with us, okay? Mm -hmm. We have people who have a strong religious background, okay? So you need to be able to um, reach out to a wide and diverse you know, population. And uh, being a faith-based organization, faith, religion, spirituality are strong elements that you need to incorporate into your, into your program. We, we have done that in, uh, in GRS and we are still you know, working on it. And then we have COVID now. Yes, please tell us. <laughs> tell us about that. How is that going with your 
policies in place, your support. Yeah, so when COVID, you know, hit the world, um, I said to myself, okay, so we already have something in place. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to put forward a new uh, service to our employees in order to help them. We had already our employee wellbeing program in place. Our staff were aware of it. We had already Comterra, you know, for the psychosocial uh, support, the counseling and so on. So basically um, it was very helpful for us to have that in place already. Okay, so what we had to do is really to open up to, um, to people on the ground, listening to what was happening to them in different countries, trying to respond, how can I say, very quickly to emergency shutters, repatriation you know, of expats on the ground, uh, looking at uh, from an HQ standpoint, what it means you know, to have people also working remotely, okay. uh, the type of uh, issues that were coming up from this new way of working. We had to really um, uh, provide more access to our Contera group and uh, also have a, a training with our HR officers to really understand how they could better support the, the staff in the field. Uh, understand also with our own uh, insurance policies, you know, what we need to have up and ready and what type of uh, agreement or even information we need to have at hand in order to be able to respond very quickly to this unprecedented crisis that we didn't even really understand, you know, much at the time. But I have to say that today we have been so flexible uh, and we have... Um, focused our policies, having the people at the center of it. Mm -hmm. So it was much more easier to take decision when you would uh, really put the people at the center of any type of decision you would make, you know, in this particular time. And that was, um, I would say quite, you know, a relief to be able to do that, okay? Because the return that we got from our staff was just amazing. Um, the flexibility also they shown, you know, in helping us even to ask your job, um, to, add, to change your way of working and continue to perform, you know, as much as they, they would in, in a normal time was quite uh, something. So we had to rebalance also, let's say, the hours of work for those who had uh, family members mm -hmm. because... Um, we, we find out that a lot of people were working like seven days a week to be able to reach out to our people on the ground constantly. Mm -hmm. So we had to, to work on rebalancing that a little bit. And then there were, you know, the, the time of total lockdown here in Europe, the loss of some of our projects on the ground and the consequences of that, the loss of some of our donors, mm -hmm. you know, re-evaluating uh, some of our proposals, and so on. So that has created a lot of uh, stress, yeah. a lot of, um, you know, um, how can I say, um, disruptions, you know, in uh, mm. people's work and life as well. Mm -hmm. So we had to train our staff how to respond, you know, to employees who would come to you with fears of losing your job, mm -hmm. um, the fears of even, you know, mm, doing more harm than good in terms of passing this 
unknown disease, you know, to, to the field. The lack of traveling also has been a real issue in our organization because we're here in Rome, but most of our work is done on the ground and we travel a lot. So for some of our staff, it has been quite a real issue in, you know, not being able to travel. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, some of our staff have been questioning even whether they would continue working like this. So how do you respond to that? Because, you know, um, losing employees right now is also a, a challenge. So we have been in, um, in different positions as HR. So we have been, you know, um, asked to translate decrees, uh, to translate, you know, protocols, because, you know, being here in Rome, for example, we, we've just issued uh, another protocol because obviously government are, changing and updating their, their national protocols in terms of preventing the spread of COVID. And you have to do that also in a work environment, okay? So we have had to wear different hats as, a, as HR. And this is why um, I also believe that the role of HR when you have an employee well-being program is really critical, mm -hmm. okay? So we're looking at how our role has changed Mm -hmm. And what in the future, you know, HR professionals or HR leaders will have to look like or the type of training or skills mm -hmm. they will have to have with them in order to face um, these new roles in terms of uh, how do you respond to, you know, a pandemic? How do you build up, you know, a spirit of care within an organization, which in the past for many years, it wasn't really the case. HR would be very much... Uh, focus on policies, recruitment, administration. And now with COVID, we have, you know, the care for the employees and the well-being really at another level. And we have to be up to that level as professionals. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking of the uh, humanitarian human resource conference I attended last year that was uh, organized by the core humanitarian standard alliance, Humentum and Cigna. And several uh, HR professionals talked about being kind of in the middle between employees and the organizations. And mm -hmm. you see in this discussion on COVID, a lot of the stresses you have just enumerated. I'm wondering, especially since you said at the beginning that you're a mother of two, we know a lot of people have dependents, elderly dependents. Um, there's a lot of dynamic situation changing. Should we be keeping people at home? Should we be out and about? Um, I think people are now shifting again how they are operating. What have you learned that you'd like to share with other organizations who are grappling with similar challenges in terms of supporting staff well-being at the same time maybe they're having to uh, adapt to reduced funding? What would you say would be what, one of your key learnings from this whole situation at the end of the day to preserve this focus on staff well-being while still pre preserving support for affected populations? Yes, so that's a very good question. And uh, what comes up, you know, right on top of my head, I would say, first of all, from an organization standpoint internally, a communication, a constant and concise communication on what is happening and what the organization is able to provide to employees is critical, okay? The behavior, of the management is also very important, okay? 
another aspect looking you know outside the organization is maintaining maintaining sorry maintaining a real a sense of partnership okay collaboration with other organizations sharing knowledge uh, building relationship you know in this time is critical because obviously you cannot only rely on your own resources and you need to be able to uh, open up to others, share what you have and also receive what others have been doing. Never reinvent the wheel, okay, but adapt the wheel. What else I could say is also in terms of uh, which has been good for us in our employee wellbeing program, for example, is our donors. Being able to tell your story as real as possible, you know, to make sure that donors engage with you. And I have to say, we have great donors for our employee wellbeing program who have understood really, you know, the need mm -hmm. and the advantages that such a program can bring to the organization. Um, so we have been able to link them directly to the field, okay, and show them the result of their investment in our organization. Mm -hmm. And that has led us to have uh, more funding uh, for our employee wellbeing program. Okay, unexpectedly, we received more um, visibility because we've been sharing what we have been doing. We have been sharing with various networks and partners, and uh, that has been very helpful in terms of develop, having a, a bigger impact of the work that we're doing, but also um, reach out to more employees here at the HQ, but also in the ground, because we felt really part of all this program, you know, at the beginning, as I mentioned to you four years ago, when we did this analysis, they were really, we interviewed them, we asked them to really share with us. And uh, being able to see the results of that, you know, to be able to access uh, Conterra, to have, you know, policy that really help them in their day-to-day -day life, it's really, it's really helpful. Uh, flexibility is also something that needs to be taken into, into consideration. Policies are there, sure, but they can also be flexible, yeah. okay? So, and trusting, trusting your staff is also something that has helped our employee wellbeing program, the way we implemented our employee wellbeing program. It's uh, interesting to me that you said the donors are on board with this because we've had conversations as part of the initiative to cultivate caring and compassion aid organizations that one of the main barriers to providing the duty of care when it comes to employee well-being is that it's too expensive. Uh, and we hear from people we've interviewed that uh, when you have a financial crisis, it's the first thing to cut. But it sounds like that's the opposite in your case. It is the opposite. But again, when um, you know I initiated this, I said, okay, this is gonna be a big process of change. Um, employee well-being doesn't have to be necessarily expensive, okay? Uh, and again, when I say I partner with a lot of organizations, for example, universities, um, universities, it's a relationship that you're building. They need organizations like, like ours for your student. We need their expertise, you know, as an organization, because we don't have, you know, a lot of, like, for example, students working with me on the analysis that I did in, in uh, 2017. So it's, Again, it doesn't have to be expensive, but you need to develop, let's say, partnerships with many organizations and universities in order for them to help you and exchange what you can offer as an organization and what they can also offer you. The Conteja, for example, Conteja, which is 
let's say, in terms of services that we are offering, I would say the most expensive. Mm -hmm. But we have been able to negotiate, okay? They also understood, you know, the value of being a partner with GIS. So again, it doesn't have to be completely, um, it doesn't have to be very expensive. When I say the role of HR officers, manager, it's really important. You have them already in the organization, mm. okay? So how do you train them, okay, to really understand your role within an employee well-being program, okay? Uh, that is not something that has an additional cost to your employee well-being program. You have your learning and development, you know, unit. You can focus on the type of training you're offering you know, your staff and have a specific training offers to your uh, HR and managers as well. So it, depend, it, it really depends from which, um, let's say, standpoint you're looking at this. Okay. And um, how can I say that? You know, having a great conversation or a great manager that can really, you know, um, empathize with you, you know, understand you mm -hmm. has no cost. I mean, it will reduce 14 visits, you know, to your psychologist, you know, just having a manager that really understands you, that really is able to communicate effectively with you. So again, it's really about investing in those layers, HR officers, colleagues, managers, and so on. Excellent. Another of the barriers that we've been heard about in terms of duty of care is that there isn't enough buy-in from the top leaders, mm. that they have a lot of competing priorities and this is always overlooked on the agenda. And since you've worked in several different organizational contexts, what advice would you give to people who would like to do something similar to what you have done to convince their top leadership that it's worth the time and whatever resources uh, are allocated? Yeah, and again, I can only speak for uh, my experience, yeah. but... Um, what I would say is, um, you know, there is so much research and data and figures, okay, and numbers about how uh, unproductive, how um, difficult, you know, and, or how challenging an organization can become if they do not invest in their employees, okay? It's a fact, okay? So um, if you want to, you know, be successful in your business or be able to really um, reach your goals as an organization, you have to look at your internal figures, internal data, okay? your absenteeism, mm -hmm. uh, the number of claims in the organization, uh, the number of uh, you know, sick people, the level of stress in the organization, the level of people leaving the organization. And so you, you, you look at those figures and you look at how much they cost you. Mm -hmm. So you bring them into the cost of the, of the organization. And that's where you realize that if you do not take action, mm -hmm. you may be uh, fundraising, you may be receiving you know, uh, money, but a huge part of it is not going to um, respond to your mission, but instead uh, trying to um, how can I say, maintain the, the issues that you have within your organization in terms of, you know, people not performing because, you know, presentation, they're there, but they're not necessarily working. Yes. Uh, 
because again, uh, you have a lot of sick people. You have a people who are, you know, um, leaving earlier into pension because of um, uh, mental issues. And the numbers are there and you can easily um, retrieve them. So it's really about showing them how much they lose if they don't invest in, uh, in employees. And you can just do very small um, example, okay? Using maybe small groups and small um, exercise within the organization and you see the difference. Mm -hmm. For example, we have, when we do recruit people in, our, in GRS, some of them are asking already, but you know, um, I will be working in a very difficult countries. I will be witnessing a very challenging situation. So what do you do as an organization to help me with that? Do you have a, a service for me that I can reach out to? People, young people are already requesting for it. And oh, that's really? exactly, yeah. So they, they are already asking for that. Mm. And meaning that if you don't have a straight answer, yeah. you lose those people. Mm -hmm. okay. So as an organization, I think we really have to start reflecting on um, you know, how much we have to, to, to improve ourselves in order to really reach our organizational goals or even uh, improve our own businesses, I would say, if mm -hmm. you know, you're in the private sector. But um, yeah, I mean, it's clear, it's, it's, it's there. There is more research on how beneficial it is to have uh, an appropriate type of support for your employees than the opposite. So evidence is already there. Mm. And um, Excellent, I'm glad because uh, some of the people we interviewed said we have to have, what do they call it? Killer statistics and compelling stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Killer numbers. Also, yes. I'm glad you brought up the youth issue because one of the things we found in our research was that the experience that aid workers have when it comes to uh, the stress that comes with a job can vary depending on different factors. So age is one, mm -hmm. where you, how old you are. Um, another thing that came up in the research was gender. So you already mentioned <laughs> in JRS, mm -hmm. you have a specific uh, arrangement. It's a, male order the jesuits are mm -hmm. you have a lot of different people in the organization um another uh, variable is the status of a person if they're so-called mm -hmm. international or national uh, race um other other factors that bring diversity to an organization people experience the stress differently and also they might have different access to the services that are on offer to staff, so, and, and you've worked in other organizations as well. Do you want to say anything about this piece of, of diversity? Yes, and, uh, you know, working at the UN is really like working on, uh, <laughs> you work with a lot of international uh, staff, okay? And um, so diversity is there and you're kind of, you know, used to it. Um, when you speak about diversity in the context of uh, employee well-being or in the context of um, um, how this is impacting, you know, uh, how diversity has an impact on stress or on uh, occupational safety, it, it has a huge impact. And this is why you, uh, as an organization, I would say, 
you cannot just have a one size fits whole fits you know whole type of strategy. You really have to understand what are the different trends in terms of and you mentioned it race, age, religion, you know, sexual um, orientation, and so on. And uh, I have to to say that we have been at GRS able to to look at those um, at this diversity area, trying to find some commonalities within uh, the diversity of our populations, okay? Uh, I mentioned to you, um, we are faith-based organizations, okay? So for example, spirituality, religions, um, different type of faith mm -hmm. uh, are commonalities that we, we would use, you know, we have people who are absolutely uh, have no religious background, so that is a group of people, for example. Mm -hmm. And for those group of people, you would pro provide a different type of support if need be, okay? We have what we call, you know, the peer support, mm -hmm. um, let's say, um, activity or action that we also promote within our uh, offices. We have um, what we call also uh, reconciliation which is a, a program that is very much focused for the people we serve, but there is a slight component mm -hmm. which is also related to staff care and employee well-being. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we are really looking at finding commonalities into the diversity of the people that, that we serve. The fact that we serve, you know, um, a very diverse type of population we are also recruiting a very diverse type of workforce, okay? And um, so that people can find support within the organization, but also within the com community that they serve, okay? So it's really um, a subject that we are right now developing, as I mentioned to you, for example, diversity, we are just, we, we finalize our policy which was uh, quite interesting to, to work on within the context of this organization. But you know, today we are able to, to work on an implementation um, phase, which uh, looks at providing you know, uh, specific issues from um, the office in the, in, in, uh, at HQ, but also how we do our work on the ground meaning that every single person who will be entering the organization at HQ level or working in our project on the ground, mm -hmm. we have an understanding of where GRS position itself in terms of gender, in terms of inclusion. And when we say gender diversity is not only men and women, it's also, uh, you know, working, for example, with uh, LGTB, you know, people mm -hmm. working with, um, uh, the most diverse, you know, people that you would find. We we welcome everyone, okay, which is the basis. So if you're not okay with that, don't knock at our door, okay? Um, we work with everyone, and uh, that's what we promote as an organization. So um, the, the values of the organizations are important to us. Mm -hmm. So if you adhere to our values, mm -hmm. okay? Um, it's already a step, you know, in the right direction. 
in terms of you joining our organization, but us, you know, supporting you the best that we can. I don't know if it makes sense, you know. <laughs> yes. But, I was thinking when you say the word values, mm -hmm. um, our initiative is really looking at cultivating care and compassion. When you say care, I think a lot of people can guess what that means in terms mm -hmm. of we want to care about ourselves as individuals and also about each other as we work together. Um, the word compassion, uh, some people mm -hmm. have different perspectives on. Um, if you look at the word that's, as it's parsed, calm is with and passion is feeling, suffering. So you're feeling someone suffering together and you want to do something to relieve the suffering. And when you dig deeper at the word compassion, I think it can come up in many of the mm -hmm. world's dominant religions, including Christianity, Catholicism, mm -hmm. and also secularly, it seems to be something that gets a lot of people interested in humanitarian work, that they feel there's some human suffering happening in the context of war and natural disasters, et cetera. And they want, people want to do something to help relieve the suffering. That's part of the reason why people get into this work in the first place. And what we found from our interviews is that along the way, some people feel that perhaps their intentions to get involved are not always followed through with how their organizations are behaving or the ultimate outcomes. So it's curious as a last a substantive question for you. Mm -hmm. um, if we are to cultivate cultures of care and compassion in our sector, mm -hmm. what do you think that would look like? What, what might be some indicators of success as a sector if, if say in 10 years our cultures in terms of how we are working have become more compassionate more caring what would that look like for you especially considering your own personal experience uh, over this past past decades sure that's a good question so let me just you know gather my thoughts on this <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, it's a very good question, and I think, you know, um, trying to answer it, you know, briefly like this wouldn't give it, you know, the, uh, the importance that this question means. But um, the definition of uh, care, you know, I think that's one of the starting points. Um, what does really care means to you, you know, as an, as an individual, to you as a professional, and to you as a professional working in the humanitarian sector. So there are different, you know, uh, understanding of what care means in order to uh, be more, you know, uh, compassionate about, you know, what you do about, you know, the people that you are working with. So a combination of both will, to, to me, require a real definition from a, a humane standpoint, okay, and also uh, looking at what your aspirations, I would say, are in, in this world, okay, or if within your own context. Um, what I could say, you know, um, in, uh, in GRS, uh, and again, the faith component is really an added value when you work in the humanitarian sector, I would say. It gives you uh, it provides you with another level of resilience, another um, layer of understanding, you know, the work that you do and also support 
I would say. And um, the ignition um, spirituality within uh, the Jesuit, it's really um, kind of, a, how can I say, a, a pastoral approach, but also looking at companion, okay? We accompany the people that we serve. What does this mean? Mm -hmm. Not only to the people that we serve, but also to, to yourself, mm -hmm. okay? Giving, um, how can I say, giving the whole of yourself to, to someone, you know, to assisting someone. Um, we have been discussing with some of our leaders, some of our uh, Jesuit leaders, you know, about, um, you know, talking about compassion, talking about care, talking about accompaniment. Um, and for them, it's very straightforward as a definition. For me, for example, it has been a struggle myself to really understand, yeah, accompaniment, what do you mean, you know, hand by hand with people? I mean, what do you really mean? And today we are having this type of um, discussions to really understand how we can translate, you know, uh, the care that we have to provide to our uh, people, not only staff, but also the people that we serve and also this accompaniment, you know, I wouldn't say managing compassion, but, you know, being able to be uh, compassionate without, um, how can I say, um, while taking care of yourself, mm -hmm. okay? Because that's also very uh, important. And there is this fine line and above all in the humanitarian sector that you need to be able to, to not identify, but recognize, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, so people working, you know, for us, um, I would say they have to be able to to be actors of uh, of change, because obviously you work in a in a, in a, in a context that you have decided to change in a way to change for the better. Okay, so every single one of us being able to care and compassionate, but also agent of uh, agent of change, I would say. Okay, being able to um, master all these component. Um, in your personal life, but also in your personal life, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And um, you find it more into uh, this type of organization, faith-based organization. And I wouldn't say less in organization like the UN or international organization, but um, it's, um, it's, it's described differently, okay? And um, in this type of organization, you really bring your entire self. Mm -hmm. in a faith-based organization, okay? Uh, because you're surrounded by, uh, um, I would say, different people who believe in different forces, okay? And uh, that's also another aspect that needs to be looked at in the humanitarian sector. Mm -hmm. um, when, again, when you speak about, you know, uh, caring about your employees and the people that you serve. So I don't know whether I answered your question, but I think I gave you some small hints into various areas that we could look into when we speak about compassion and care and uh, accompaniment. Yes. Mm. That's so helpful. First, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the work you do thank because you. I think people really need this kind of support. And I don't think there are enough of us getting that kind of support. So first, thank you for the work you do. 
Second, thank you for sharing it with people outside the organization, because I know for a fact that you are a very busy woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and You're you probably right. have a lot of things to do right now, so I don't want to keep you too long, but I want to thank you for sharing it because I, from the initiative, uh, Marianne Clements and I have done a lot of interviews and one of the things we've found an appetite for is organizations hearing about what other organizations are doing mm -hmm. because they don't, as you say, don't reinvent the wheel, um, adapt the wheel. So they would have a much easier time if they could have some learnings that's shared. So we're trying to do that through these. Um, and then thank you uh, for really connecting and sharing your own personal insights. I think it's been really great talking with you. For those of you who had, for those listeners who might want to learn more, um, I understand that they can maybe uh, attend the Humanitarian Human Resource Conference coming up that the yes. Humanitarian Standard Alliance is organizing in this November. Did you want to say anything about that? Yes, I mean, if they can come and also learn, you know, a perspective from a psychologist, mm -hmm. from a, an insurance provider, and from an HR professional, uh, um, what is about, you know, start care employee well-being, but mm -hmm. also under this COVID time, that's a perfect uh, floor to learn much more about it. Excellent. So we can put it in the show notes. So um, any final words before we close? No, thank you for the opportunity. And what I'd like to say is sharing your stories, it's really a way of, um, you know, giving what you, you can and also receiving a lot from others. So I would share as much as I can and people can reach out to us. We are, you know, available to share what we did, our work and some, you know, um, hints on um, how we can do the same work that they did, that we did in our organization. It's about people. Thank you so much, Melly, and good luck to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Melly Prera of JRS. This is Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. The show is edited by Ziada Abayid. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us out in three ways. First, you can share the show with your people. Second, you can leave us a review to help others find us. And third, you can make suggestions for a future episode by emailing us at compassionateorg at chsalliance.org. That's compassionateorg at chsalliance.org. We're open to your feedback and we're on the lookout for examples of good practice in the sector. We will be back soon with another show exploring care and compassion and aid in development. Till then, please take care and be compassionate with yourself.